Well, good morning. You ready for a new minor prophet? Don't get too excited because we're in Zechariah. All right? And I'm going to start right out and say Zechariah is a weird, weird book. Anybody read Zechariah this week or like over the last few weeks? All right. Thank you for not responding to the uh, call on the realm to read this text. Um, I'm sure all of you online at home have been diligently reading it, unlike those people who are here in the audience this morning. I've known I'd be preaching Zechariah for about uh, for a few months, really since I think November. We sat down, Nate and Scott and I sat down and kind of planned out this series. And um, I, I, would, I knew I was going to preach Habakkuk in January, and then I was, had the opportunity to preach Zechariah in March. Um, so I've known about this for a few months. I've been excited to preach Zechariah for about five days. Um, so you can do the math on that. I don't remember how we selected who would preach each book. I, I don't remember what happened. I think we were around my dining room table, and we kind of divvied this up. Um, I knew Habakkuk, the, the reason for that, but somehow I landed with Zachariah, and I have a feeling that Scott is at home right now in his pajamas watching this service, just kind of evilly, you know, with an evil chuckle. <laughs> Look at this guy. He's got to preach Zachariah. It is a weird book, um, and I want you to read it this week. So my intention this morning is to kind of lead you into the front door of this book and survey what you have in front of you. And then you go home this week, read the 14 chapters of Zechariah, get a little bit of a handle of what's going on there. And next week, we're going to come back and dive into one particular part. It's a strange book. It's different than the other minor prophets. It's mysterious. It's confusing. It's hard to understand at times. It's also long. It's tied for the longest of the minor prophets, and it's actually longer than a couple of the major prophets, uh, those books, which doesn't make sense if you view that the length is why they're called major and minor. That's not the case, though. So I thought about it this way. If the rest of the minor prophets or the rest of the prophets in general in the Old Testament were used cars that the dealers put in their showroom or put in the front of the lot to draw you in. Zechariah is what happens when you ask the salesman, do you have anything different or unique? These kind of all look the same to me. I I want something different. And so you're taken out back behind the, the dealership, and under a tarp is a 1975 AMC Gremlin. It's painted bright green with a little silver speckle thrown in. And the dealer says to you, you know, we just got this thing in. Some guy that was wearing a cape decided to paint fire on the hood and dragon wings on the side. And we don't know what to do with it. But if you want something unique, this is it. Well, some of you are just utterly repulsed right now, and you want to quickly go back to the main lot and say, where are the Corollas, right? Where is the Zephaniah, the Isaiahs? We want those. Those are easier. But a few of you are kind of leaning in a little bit and saying, well, this one looks interesting. (laughs) This might be the one for me, right? Well, welcome to Zechariah. It's going to be a fun couple weeks. A special welcome to those of you who ever dreamed about painting dragon wings on your vehicle. You're really going to enjoy this book. Others of you will stare in disbelief at what we have in front of us. But I think that once you take this thing around the block a few times, you might just warm up a bit. It might not be the one that you put, you know, you drive to work every day. But (laughs) hang in there for the next few weeks and we'll see if this crazy book grows on us a little bit. 
couple thousand years ago, the church fathers of the first and second century debated and struggled with what to do with the Hebrew scriptures, what we now know as our Old Testament. One second century bishop in what is now southern France, a guy by the name of Arrhenius, argued for the inclusion of the, of the Hebrew scriptures in a Christian canon. He said that these were a field in which hidden treasure is revealed and explained by the cross of Christ. I like that. Another guy by the name of Origen, who spent much of his scholarly career in Caesarea, Origen would say that the Old Testament, and particularly the prophets, were filled with riddles and parables, dark sayings, and various other forms of obscurity. Yet, he also acknowledged that these were from God and worthy of study. And so he devoted his life to them. Much, much later, C.S. Lewis said this, We must never avert our eyes from those elements in our religion which seem puzzling or repellent. For it will be precisely the puzzling or repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and need to know. I've been intrigued by that statement since I read it, I think, back in January. Puzzling texts in our Bibles, repellent texts maybe even in our Bibles. What if, like Lewis says, in those parts of scriptures, we, parts of the scriptures, we followers of Jesus find something we do not yet know but need to know? I think that's a possibility for us over the next couple weeks, so welcome to Zechariah. There will be times over the next two weeks where we'll shake our heads in disbelief and say, what was Zechariah doing writing this? What's going on here? And we will not discover all the answers. But I think there's something here. The Apostle Peter, writing shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, said this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. He said, concerning this salvation found through Christ, the prophets, like Zechariah, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, the church, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which even angels long to look." There is so much in that little verse to just ponder and be mystified about. Men like Zechariah were given these words by God's Spirit to write down and proclaim to God's people. And they wondered, what does this mean? What is this talking about? They searched and inquired carefully. And then Christ came and it revealed it. Angels longed to discover that. That's profound, isn't it? So, Zechariah. Zechariah, as you will discover if you do read this, and I, again, challenge you to plod through it. It'll be a tough one, but plod through it. Zechariah is, to use Origen or Lewis's terminology, a bit puzzling. And so I brought a puzzle this morning. This is one that my wife mostly did over our Christmas break, just a simple thousand-piece puzzle. How many of you guys do puzzles? Anybody? 
All right, there's a few of us out there. I'm, I'm not a huge puzzle piece, but puzzle guy, but I'll pick up a piece and try to find it and then get bored fairly quickly. There is a right way to put together a puzzle, and I will not debate this. This is not up for bait. This is just pure instruction. There is a right way and a wrong way to put together a puzzle. And I'm going to give you the first, the five, the, sorry, the four major steps to putting together a puzzle. The first thing you do with a puzzle is you dump out the pieces, okay? And you figure out what do we have here, right? You just kind of survey it. In order to do that, you need to flip all the pieces over. And if I had a smaller puzzle at home, I might have actually done that, but I only had a 1,000-piece puzzle at our house, and so there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. But if you're going to assemble this puzzle, and if you want to come up after the service, you're welcome to give it a shot, you would first flip over these pieces and just start to survey what do you have in front of you. You need to know what you have to work with. Step number one. Step number two to putting together a puzzle is what? Put the border together. Don't mess around with other stuff yet, okay? That's getting ahead of the game. You put the border together. The third thing you do is you start to figure out what are the easy pieces. And so on this one, there's kind of like a a boat over here. Maybe you can find those, or maybe you can find this moon, or whatever it is. You find the easy pieces, and you start to get those things together and find the right spot for those. And then finally, you do the difficult parts. Don't force the difficult parts at the front end, though. You're just going to get frustrated. So be patient with the thing. Go through these steps, and I think you'll find a lot of success in puzzle making or in the book of Zechariah. Because in Zechariah, you have to start with just seeing what do we have here before you start to figure out one particular location in Zechariah. Over the next two weeks, here's what we're going to do. This sermon here will be flipping over the prophetic puzzle pieces, if you will, seeing what we have and trying to put up the border. Next week, we're going to fill in one of the more difficult sections. Okay, so that we're going to just kind of take one of these really confusing sections and say, how does that fit in what we know Zechariah is? This week, we'll, we'll survey some of the easy sections as well. So we're going to kind of do one through three this week, and then three and four next week a, a little bit. All right? You excited about Zechariah? I'm, I'm pretty excited about this one, I, for the last five days at least. So, step number one, let's start flipping over the pieces, surveying the content of Zechariah. Let me just give you a brief, brief introduction. Zechariah was a prophet, one of the later prophets you have in your Bible. Um, He wrote and had his ministry after the people of Israel were starting to come back to the promised land, having been exiled in Babylon. So after so many of the other prophets that we've surveyed and preached through earlier this year, Zechariah is now leading people, one of the priests that is leading people back to Jerusalem to a, a country that's devastated. Okay, So jump forward in the timeline of Israel. Quite a bit. Zechariah is one of the later prophets along with Haggai. You can also read about the context of Zechariah and know where he fits if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, those uh, books that were kind of talk about the, the, the return back to Jerusalem. So that's Zechariah's ministry and that his time paid. If, if you just dump the puzzle pieces out when you're assembling a puzzle, you can sometimes wonder what in the world you've gotten yourself into. And this can happen with Zechariah. And I want to just, just show you a couple glimpses into the strangeness of Zechariah. And next week we'll try to show some light on those. Look at just verse 8 of chapter 1 if you have your Bible open. Here's what Zechariah says. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. 
already this is a little bit different than Zephaniah and Habakkuk, isn't it? Standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, like many of us, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Now, I'm not going to explain that, (laughs) but that's just a glimpse, okay? Chapter 5, let's get another glimpse of Zechariah and just get a feel. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. Welcome to Zechariah. Go down to verse 5. This is where it gets even more strange, right? Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base." Wow, (laughs) right? All right. Even the last parts of Zechariah have their moments too. Look all the way to 14, chapter 21, the last verse in Zechariah. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Even that one's a little... What is that about? That's Zechariah. We're just surveying our puzzle pieces and turning over things and seeing what we have. Really, Zechariah can be arranged in three parts. It's a long book. We're not going to have time to go through everything in this text here. But if you could think of Zechariah, think of it in three parts. The first six chapters of Zechariah are a series of visions that God gives the prophet Zechariah. They're called night visions because... He gets them in the night. And so he has these visions of the basket and of the horses and scrolls and a few other ones. Um, And you kind of read through those first six chapters and you're like, wow, this is, I don't know what to do with this. I I have a couple daughters who have um, very vivid dreams. And one of my favorite things in my day is when I'm up before them, which is pretty much every day, I'm usually drinking coffee, maybe getting their breakfast ready, something like that. And they'll come up and they're like, dad, I had a dream last night, and I know it's going to be good. Um, and, and, you know, it's just weird, strange things that are happening in my daughter's dreams. And lately, my youngest daughter, Poppy, has had these recurring dreams about our cat, who is now human-sized and in her dreams and usually functioning as some kind of superhero. So she's stuck on a mountain with some classmates, was one she was telling me on the way here this morning, and, and our cat, Wanda, in human shape comes and rescues her somehow. 
And, and so over the course of a few weeks, I'll just get these series of dreams from my daughters, and I'm just like, I don't know what to do with that. I'm not sure. And that's kind of a little bit like the first six chapters of Zechariah. You're just like, I don't know what to do with these six chapters. We're going to push in there next week a little bit more. Chapters 7 and 8 shift then. It shifts from this series of rather strange dreams to this narrative story of a delegation coming from the city of Bethel to the temple and asking a question. And that question is critical for the book of Zechariah. Chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 say this, Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharzar and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests, like Zechariah, of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now you may just glance over that question, but I think that question there is critical to the book of Zechariah. Now remember, People coming back to Jerusalem after having been in exile, countries devastated, Jerusalem, no walls, they're being rebuilt, the temple has been torn down, that's being rebuilt. It's all just a shadow of its former glory. And the people are coming back and saying, we've been fasting, we've been weeping, we've been in repentance for our sin, which God has judged. Do we stop now? And what they're asking is this question, do we continue to fast since the temple is being rebuilt? Are things going to get better for us as a people now? In fact, they're asking this, is God still with us? And that question right there, if you get that one and start to use that as a lens to look through Zechariah, you will see things in a different light. It'll help to unlock some of those visions and strange things that are said. Is God still with us? That's what the delegation from Bethel is asking the priests in Jerusalem in response to that, we get chapters 9 through 14, and even into chapter 8, these, these, these answers. Yes. Yes. In fact, it's even better than you think is what happens. It's a series of poetic oracles in the last stage of Zechariah, where these, these images and understandings of God's goodness to his people, his return to his people, his judgment of sin and his, um, his salvation are laid out and promised Again, So that's kind of our survey of Zechariah. Remember those three parts. We'll come back to those again. Step two in putting our puzzle together is to put up the border. The border for us is the context of the book. The historical context of the book, which we talked about after the exile, and the literary context. I was reading, um, I've been studying it in the ESV and just wasn't, was really struggling with Zechariah a few weeks ago. And so I picked up my copy of Eugene Peterson's The Message, which I'll turn to from time to time and find helpful. And here's what Peterson says in his introduction to the, the book of Zechariah. He says, The people were faced with more than a ruined temple and city. Their self-identity as the people of God was in ruins. For a century, they had been knocked around by the world powers, kicked and mocked, used and abused. This once proud people, their glorious sacred history, starred with the names of Abraham, Moses, Samuel, David, and Isaiah, had been treated with contempt for so long that they were in danger of losing all connection with that past, losing their magnificent identity as God's people. Jerusalem was in ruins, and the people are asking, is God still with us? 
I almost think about it as Jerusalem was like that gold rush town a few years after the rush died out. You know, empty shells of building, tumbleweed rolling through the streets, a few folks wandering around aimlessly. The saloon doors are kind of swaying in the breeze. Just a shell of its former bustle and glory. It's Jerusalem. Now, our literary context, what this book is, is a a series of all kinds of interesting things. There are narrative stories in here. There are oracles, poetry. And the first part is what's known as apocalyptic literature. There are a few books in your Bible that are keyed in on this. The most famous one is Revelation. You also have the back half of Daniel. Zechariah is a big one. And a few other sections in some of the other prophets. It's these series of, of visions filled with symbolism that God gives and instructs his people with. Apocalypse, as you read it, is not meant to clear up all the answers in a tidy fashion, though. Apocalyptic literature, like Zechariah, like those scrolls and baskets and horses, apocalyptic literature is meant to create wonder in God's people. If you try to give an early definition, don't do that. Just let it sit out there for a while, like I did even. It's meant to create wonder. And I think the book of Zechariah will do that for us as we survey it and study it over the next few weeks. So that's the border got the context of what's going on among God's people and the context of what kind of literature we're looking at here, which is different than many of the other prophets. So let's move into step three for a little bit this morning. Let's fill in some of the easy parts. Let's just kind of survey that. And here's here's what I want to do is rather than look at one particular section, I want to take out the difficult parts like you almost would in a puzzle. Like if this was 90% sky, you just kind of put all that similar color stuff out and you're like, here's what I'm going to, I know what to do with this thing. So we're going to take out the hard parts and save those for next week. little teaser there. This week, we're going to really look and survey through the book and see what's the major theme of this book and then we'll start to fit those other pieces around that, if that makes sense. Here's the question again. Is God still with his people? Is God still with his people after exile and devastation and a temple that is shaping up to be nothing like Solomon's glorious temple? Things are not currently as magnificent as the people had hoped they would be. Is God still with his people? Is he still the God that will honor his promises? Earlier prophets like Isaiah that many of you have been studying with me had foretold the exile and return. And so the easy part of Zechariah, step number three, is to look at these abundant promises that God makes throughout. And if you start to pull out some of the confusing parts of Zechariah and just say, hold on to that for a second, we'll get back to that, what's clear here first? You start to see God's promises just abound in this 14-chapter book. It's amazing to me as I study this book because what tends to happen, like so many of my early readings, is I just get lost in the horses and the baskets and the lead covers and all that kind of stuff and go, what in the world to do with those? What's clear here? God makes promises, and they're beautiful. Listen to some of these. I'm going to just read some of these in quick fashion. Chapter 1, verse 17, here's what God says. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. You see the emphasis there. 
chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, shadows of exodus already, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. God is saying, I will protect my people, I will make them abound, and I will be the glory in the middle of my people. Next one, chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And so here's how Peterson paraphrases it. He says, at that time, everyone will get along with one another with friendly visits across the fence. Friendly visits with one another's porches. I like that, right? We... We don't get that right now. I I long for that fulfillment right now. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. We'll come back to that one in a second. Chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Now, some of you are like, that doesn't seem very safe. Remember the context. This is a while ago, okay? Streets were more of a park atmosphere than a busy highway. It's a beautiful picture, though. Old men and women with children playing kind of long for that. Chapter 8, verse 13. O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Hints back to the promise made to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. Chapters 9 through 14, then, are just promise after promise after promise after promise of God's justice and God's merciful redemption. Promise after promise after promise. My favorite one is chapter 10, verses 8 through 9. I will whistle for them and gather them in. For I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I let my dogs out in the backyard this morning when I first got up to go do their business. And after a while, they needed to come in. And so I just kind of do that little, come on, can't, that was, that was, I can't do it while I'm preaching probably. But just whistle for them, and my dogs eagerly come in when I whistle. I love that imagery. Here's God, I will whistle for them and gather them in, bringing his people, his family back to himself. It even ends uh, with an amazing promise. Chapter 14 Verse 11, look at this one, 14 verse 11, and it shall be inhabited, Jerusalem shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction, and here's the statement, Jerusalem shall dwell in security. 
promise after promise after promise after promise. If you read through Zechariah, just start underlining those this week. God reminds his people of his promises, points back to the promises he made in Genesis, in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in 1 Samuel, in Isaiah. But what happens in Zechariah is he doesn't just remind them of the promises. These promises start to get even better than the original. Zechariah takes it up a mysterious notch, a notch that he doesn't even know, perhaps, according to 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12, how that is fulfilled. But something even better than what was promised in Exodus or Deuteronomy is now hinted at in Zechariah. Zechariah doesn't just prophesy a return to the glory of Solomon's day or David's day. He takes it up and gives the people something even more to hope for. Because now, for instance, it's not just Israel that will be the benefit of God's favor. Nations will be joined to the Lord and are now part of God's people. Chapter 2, verse 10 shows us this. Let me just read a few of these verses. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. It's not just Israel anymore. God is going to bring in the nations. And perhaps Zechariah's listeners were saying, well, how? To be answered later. Skip forward to the book of Acts and you'll see. Spirit is poured out and nations come and hear the news of Jesus and believe in the gospel and the church is formed and spreads throughout the world. And as we heard in last week's sermon, one day all nations will sit in front of the throne of God and say, holy, 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 worthy is the lamb that was slain. Fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Another one, Zechariah gives not just a promise of a sacrificial system to deal with sins. He says, as we heard earlier in chapter 3, verse 9, that sins will be forgiven in a single day. I imagine the listeners of Zechariah saying, how is that possible? Because we have to keep bringing these bulls and these goats and these sheep and these animals to the temple in order to have our sins forgiven. How is that going to be possible? Chapter 13, 1 hints at this fountain that will be opened to cleanse the people from sin and uncleanness. And it's very easy for us sitting on this side of the cross to know where that was fulfilled. Jesus once for all pardoned his people's sins, forgave their sins through his shed blood. And that fountain is wide open for us to be clean. Zechariah, we'll get into this one next week a little bit more in all likelihood. Zechariah promises not just a high priest for God's people, not just a king for God's people, but somehow those two roles or offices among God's people will be fused together, and there will be this priest king over God's people. If you were an Israelite in Isaiah's day, you would have known that there's a high priest. It was a guy named Joshua um, back in that day. You'll see him next week. You would have known that there was a king sitting on the throne, or there should be a king on the throne, but those were two different roles. Priests, they had their job of bringing people to God and leading people in sacrifice, leading people in worship. Kings governed God's people according to God's world, and they kind of had their roles in unique positions. Well, Zechariah will say those two roles are going to collide together in a future priestly king or kingly priest who will bring peace. Chapter 6 verse gives all kinds of shades of this, and it's fulfilled in Jesus. Listen to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. We have such a high priest. 
but not just a priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We have a priest who is reigning over all. And what that means, we're going to get into a little bit more next week. Zechariah will show that there will not just be times of war punctuated by peace, but that there will be perpetual peace or shalom among God's people. It reminds the people of the earlier prophecies by Isaiah. In fact, let me show you how Zechariah points back to them. You've heard Isaiah's prophecies. Or sorry, you've heard Zechariah's prophecies. If you look at Isaiah chapter 65, verses, verse 19, starting there, here's what Isaiah prophesies many years before Zechariah. He says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. The old man in the street, right? For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall enjoy long the work of their hands. So Isaiah, or sorry, Zechariah points back to Isaiah's prophecies, but points towards something even greater. And we see a glimpse of that in the book of Revelation, where there will be a time of unending peace before God. And finally, Isaiah, or sorry, I keep saying that. I have an Isaiah class on Thursday night, as many of you know, and so I'm getting my prophets mixed up a little bit here. Zechariah prophesies about the temple. The temple was being rebuilt. It was a sh- kind of a sad shadow of the former temple under Solomon. It's just kind of a ramshackle thing compared to what Solomon's glorious temple was. But Zechariah prophesies a new temple. Look at chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 for a glimpse of this. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Again, that image, there's lots of stuff going on in that little two-verse package there, but you see a new temple will be built. The branch will build that temple. What in the world is that pointing to? Is it just something that will be fulfilled in Zechariah's day? Well, there was a new temple built, a second temple built in Zechariah's day. But listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up pointing to that temple that was built in Zechariah's day. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is that temple where God forgives sin, where God is with his people. And it's even further fulfilled in the church. If you flip forward to, if you want to follow along, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you see this amazing statement as you start to think through these connections here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 7. Uh, where is it? Yeah. I'm 
I think I wrote the wrong. Oh, I'm looking at 2 Corinthians. Sorry, I should have put this one in my notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, church? Jesus builds that temple. And it's even further fulfilled in eternity. If you flip forward all the way to the end, Revelation chapter 21, just to give you a glimpse of what is to come. And starting to connect the dots here. Revelation 21, verses 20, verse 22. Uh, Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the eternal city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So Zechariah is pointing, this temple will be built, but it's even better than, than this construction that's going on behind him in Jerusalem. You see how Zechariah does this. Here's the easy parts we've filled in. There are, there's just a plethora of promises that God packs into these 14 chapters and said, there is something amazing coming and it's even better than you can possibly imagine. It's better. It's greater. So how do we react? What do we do with this? I actually think the book of Zechariah gives us two really straightforward instructions for what we should do with this even this morning. First, go back to chapter 2. I know I've had you flipping around like crazy this morning. Chapter 2, verse 13. Here's the command. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God is with his people. Be in awe of that. Be in awe of that. When Isaiah stood before God's throne, he said, Woe am I. There's a humility as you understand that the God of the universe is with his people. And Zechariah reminds the people devastated by loss that God is with them. But there's more. Because it'll turn. The tone will turn in the book of Zechariah. If you skip forward to chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Be silent. Shout loudly. It'll seem a little incompatible, but in Zechariah, as we kneel in humility before God and as we stand in joy before the Lord of hosts, we do that because we realize that our king is with us and he is coming again. Trembling awe goes hand in hand with deep joy when you understand that God is awake and that God is accomplishing something spectacular through his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Understanding God's faithful fulfillment of his promises drives us to our knees in humility and then to our feet in joyful celebration. And so into this situation of disenchantment among God's people at this time, God brings massive reminding hope through Zechariah's rather strange prophecy. So let me just take a minute and try to briefly bring this into our day. My guess is that about 95% of us, give or take a few points there, are disenchanted with life right about now to some degree. If you could go back and ask 2018 or 2019 you what you expected in March of 2021, it would likely not look like this, right? There's this feeling of dissatisfaction and disenchantment that is rampant in our culture and even in our churches. Life is hard right now. 
You may know people who have suffered or died due to the pandemic. Your office or school might be shut down. You might not have a job, wondering how to provide for your family. You've spent more time in your home than is probably healthy over the last year. You want to be able to hug someone at church without feeling guilty or awkward. The general mood among God's people right now is bleh. Where is God in this? God's promises held true in Zechariah's day. And God's promises hold true even in the dark times. God fulfilled his promises to Zechariah and the people then, hinted at something greater, and we live in that gap. And we look forward to something greater that God will fulfill in his time. God's promises hold true even in the dark times, and those promises are greater than we can possibly imagine. Sometimes the the puzzle of our life doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The pieces don't fit. There's missing pieces. But God promises an even greater picture that we'll enjoy eternally. Take hope in that. Next week, we're going to dive into one of those strange visions, maybe a couple of them if I can figure out how to do two. And I think it'll help us even understand more how God is faithful to his word and promises even greater things to his people through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we face disenchantment with life right now and a weariness trying to rebuild so much of what we've lost over the last year, help us to remember your saving acts. Help us to cling to your promises and find deep confidence and joy in our God who not only fulfills his promises, but lavishes even more grace and blessing on his people than we could possibly imagine. You have not just forgiven your people through Christ Jesus, you've adopted us as cherished sons and daughters. You have not just accepted your people, you're making them holy. You haven't just saved your people, you've predestined us for an eternity of joy and bliss with you. And so in you and through you, there is so much more than we deserve or can imagine. May we ground our hope in your promises as we face difficult times. In Christ's name we pray. 